All right. Well, good morning, everybody. We're so glad you're joining us this morning. And today we are continuing our series through the book of Romans. And this morning we're basically picking up where we left off last week. We finished uh, chapter three of Romans um, last week and looked at how salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Because of that, no man can boast. We can't boast. We didn't do it. God accomplished it all. It's only our faith in him that we receive salvation. Paul writes in Romans 3, 27 through 31, this is where we left off. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So it is not about the works of the law, it's about faith. But that is not to say that we get rid of the law. We uphold it to the, to the degree that it guides us in faithfulness, in right living and showing us what that looks like. Uh, Martin Luther says of this, he says, The true living faith, which the Holy Spirit instills into the heart, simply cannot be idle. So works do not justify us. We are justified by faith and through faith, and we know, as James writes, without, uh, without works, faith is dead. Uh, for we know we were known by our fruit. Um, but it's faith that saves us, not the fruit, not the works. They're simply a byproduct of a living faith, and a living faith where our hearts are instilled by the Holy Spirit cannot be idle. So hopefully that gives some clarification there uh, for a saving faith. Uh, This brings us to chapter 4, and we will be studying all 25 verses this week as it's one continual argument from Paul built around Abraham. And we're going to see this morning from Paul what true Abrahamic faith looks like. We see again and again Paul founding Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, firmly within the scriptures. He is demonstrating to his Jewish readers that it goes all the way back to Abraham and beyond. So in Romans 4, uh, verse 1 through 25, I encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, got your devices, go ahead and open up to Romans 4. We're going to be going through the whole chapter. So it would really help you if you had it open. Uh, Paul continues explaining this law of faith, uh, that we are justified by faith, apart from works of the law. He writes, verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? And that's a great question. What does Scripture say? Anytime we're faced with a question on theology or on life, 
take a note from Paul's playbook. What does scripture say? Paul is not so interested in in what you heard one time or or what you feel it should be or what you wish it would be. Paul is concerned with what does scripture say? That is Paul's authority. And not only Paul's, remember that the the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, when Jesus would go around and people would ask him questions and, and he would ask repeatedly, what do the scriptures say? Have you not read? Do you not know? He'd refer them constantly to the scriptures. And it was with scripture that Jesus overcame Satan's temptations in the wilderness. Remember that. And it was also with scriptures that he corrected the false and the wrong teachings of uh, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees of that day. Uh, Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, if you remember from our series in Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 24, he's responding to the Sadducees, questioning him about the resurrection and life after death, which the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and life after death. And, and they gave Jesus a hypothetical they thought was a contradiction uh, for the resurrection. And Jesus used scripture to show that God is the God of the living and not the, on, and not the dead. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So he is the God of the living and not the dead. So he says to them, you are quite wrong (laughs) because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They were wrong on two accounts because they neither knew the scriptures nor the power of God. They did not know how to interpret the scriptures because they did not know the power of God and they did not know the power of God because they did not know how to interpret the scriptures. So they were stuck. If you throw out the scriptures that you don't like, in favor of those that you do, then you become a Sadducee. Likewise, if you add things to the scriptures to keep others down and to elevate yourself, then you become a Pharisee. So as Paul says, and as Jesus says repeatedly throughout his ministry, what do the scriptures say? Well, here in Romans chapter four, Paul quotes from Genesis 15, six. This is what the scriptures says. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is simply brilliant. Absolutely inspired by God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Why is this so crucial to everything? Well, Paul continues, verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, apart from works. And this is from Psalm 32 by David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And Paul says in verse 9, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Okay, so now Paul, he's drilling in here. He made the argument and has supported it now with two passages from Scripture. And now he asked the question, because the scriptures say Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, since this is true and we know David confirms it saying, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin, how then was his faith counted to him as righteousness? He says, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but 
before he was circumcised. So this is so good. He drilled a hole and then he just put a dynamite in it and he lit the fuse of the dynamite. Uh, this was before Abraham was circumcised. The Jews viewed circumcision uh, essentially as a prerequisite to salvation. But here Paul is saying, no, long before Abraham was circumcised, God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. So then, what does circumcision do or mean? Well, Paul goes on, verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And that's us Gentiles. That's, that's for the world. That's God's design and plan. And Paul is sort of you know, peeling back the layers and, and, and the wonders of God's plan for us to see it. This is why God did that. And then Paul addresses the Jews as well in verse 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So he's saying to the Jewish brothers, don't look at the flesh. Don't look to works, to works of the law. Look to the faith of our father Abraham. And sharing in his circumcision is not merely a ritual. It's not checking off the box. It is signifying that you are called to also walk in his footsteps of faith. The faith Abraham had long before he was ever circumcised. Isn't that cool? See, not only is Paul building an argument for grace and inclusion of the Gentiles, he is also calling the Jewish believers to a higher bar. The lower bar is the bar of the flesh. Let me do this ritual, you know, I'll, I'll be good. You know, you know that's, that's low bar stuff. High bar stuff is looking not to the flesh, but to God. Looking and trusting in God believing his word, and walking in true obedience. And, and how is Paul calling us to a higher bar? He's doing so from the scriptures. There's no deviation to the right or to the left. Paul is showing the shining beacon pointing to the grace of God through faith. That begins in Genesis. It's from the very beginning. And in our passage in Romans 4, Paul is referring to Genesis 15, one through six. So let's take a look at this for context. Uh, we read the word of the Lord came to Abram. This was done before Ab Abraham uh, was renamed. So he's called Abram. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Believing that he would have 
his very own son, and his offspring would be as numerous as the stars of heaven. He believed the Lord. That was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God, and he believed God's word. So Paul in verse 12 is saying to his Jewish brothers, be those who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham that he had long before he was circumcised. This is the circumcision of the heart that Paul spoke of in chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. If you remember that, Paul said, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So he's saying to his Jewish brothers, don't look at the flesh, don't look at works, look to the faith of our father Abraham. Verse 13 of chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promises of God to Abraham had nothing to do with the law. God made these promises centuries before giving the law through Moses. So these promises are by faith, and it was through this faith, not through works of the law, that God blessed Abraham. Wow, verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. And now the, the dynamite Paul put into that holy drill just went off in, in, in this hypothetical scenario. Uh, 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 Paul is drilling into these Jewish arguments, uh, and he's drilling into the law of works, and he just blew it up. Because if it is by the law of works, and only adherents of the law will be saved through works, then, well, everyone is doomed. Everyone is doomed, for the law brings wrath. The law brings wrath, and in that system, there is only bad and worse. That's it. So, so you end up praying like the Pharisee prayed uh, in the parable Jesus told. The Pharisee stood up and, and was praying and said, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector, this sinner. Thank you, I'm not as bad as him. Right? And, and, and that's what it becomes. Thank you, I'm, I'm not as bad as this other person. And that's just an ugly, ugly system. And it's hopeless and it leads to wrath. For it was set up only to reveal sin and our need of a savior. Remember that the white glove test, that the law reveals sin. Good luck, you know, doing the white glove test throughout your whole house and not finding any dirt. And imagine if you did that test and if you found one spot of dirt in your home, the whole house would be burned up. That's what it's like putting your hope in the works of the law. I don't know about you, but my home would be toast if that was the test. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So don't put yourself into that system of the law. That leads to wrath because God has shown us another way. He has shown us our sin through the law, but he's also shown us the true way, and it is through grace. It's through grace. So Paul goes on, and, and this is the true Abrahamic faith. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. 
grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, everyone else, the Gentiles, who is the father of us all, both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 17, as it is written, now he, now, now he quotes Genesis 17, 5, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of, the, of, of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And that's pretty cool. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not ex- exist. And in God's promises, he is calling things into existence that do not exist and things that seem impossible to us are possible with God. Verse 18, still speaking of Abraham, in hope he believed against hope, or as the NIV translates it, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham, with with no logical reason, no natural explanation for believing Sarah's womb would be opened and she would bear him a son. But even so, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. And on the contrary to wavering in his faith, as the promise of God was long in coming, he instead grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. God was able to do what he promised. Augustine said of this, he said that God does not expect us to submit our faith to him without reason, but the very limits of our reason make faith a necessity. Abraham was not without reason for his faith. God had spoken to him And so it was the limits of his faith that made it a necessity. It was the limits of his reason that made his faith a necessity. Man, that's that's cool. That is cool. So how do we increase our faith? How do we get the faith of Abraham, this kind of faith in God? Well, Paul gives us two ways from the life of Abraham. First is give glory to God. Worship God with praises and thanksgivings. Abraham worshiped God for that is right and it's proper for us to do so, to give glory to God for its glory that's due him. He's the God of the universe. He's our creator. We can't begin to comprehend the vastness of God. We can't begin to comprehend the vastness of God's creation even. And the more we study it, the more we realize we don't know. It's just beyond comprehension how complex it is, how wonderful it is. The complexity of life that we see around us speaks to the glory of God. It declares his glory to us. He has shown himself to us, for he's the God who made us 
in his own image, who breathed life into Adam. He is a God who knows the unknowable, who can accomplish the impossible, and is faithful to all of his word and to the things he has promised. What can we say of this God? What, what can we know of this God from his word? Only that he loves us. Only that he loves us. On the cross, the love of God was poured out. And so we praise God. We glorify his mighty name that he made us and he loves us and he's true to his word. The second thing Paul mentions about Abraham's faith is that he was fully convinced God was able to do what he promised. Even though it was long in coming, even though logically it was ridiculous, Abraham believed because Abraham's God is big and, and Abraham's God is faithful and nothing is too hard for him, and he is faithful to his promises. For Abraham's God is the God we see revealed in the Bible to us, who is the Almighty and who is true and faithful, which is why David could write in Psalm 37, uh, 7 through 9, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. If you're fretting, if you're turning to anger and to wrath in the face of evil people succeeding, get a bigger God. Get a bigger God. Know the God of the Bible, the one who will destroy all who are evil and will give life everlasting to all who hope in him. James 5, uh, 7 through 11 also draws on this, on this writing on trusting in God. Verse 7, be patient. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Behold, he's standing at the door. He's at the door. Some of us, you know, need to, to get some new heroes in our life, maybe. Consider, James says, consider the steadfastness of Job who had everything stripped away, everything, and yet he remained faithful to God. Yet he trusted in God. Why? Because as Peter says to Jesus in John chapter 6, when Jesus taught a difficult teaching, and many who were following Jesus turned away from him and walked away, and then Jesus turned to the twelve who were with him and said, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else would we go? This, this isn't always easy, our faith, our walk with Christ. And, and yes, some teachings are, are confusing and, and difficult to understand, but where else would we go? For in Christ is eternal life. He is the Holy One of God. No matter the times where we must patiently endure, no matter the times of tragedy, no matter the times of trial and tribulation uh, that, that we're going to face in this life. We're going to face it. The question is always that of Simon P. 
Peter, in the face of all of that, where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go but to God? In these times of trial and tribulation, we know and we can trust that God is near. He was near to Job. He was near to David. He was near to Abraham as he waited years and years. He is near to you as well. He is near. He is at the door. He is at the door. So number one, are you giving him glory? Are you giving him the glory due to him? Are you worshiping him? Singing songs of praise amidst pain. It is one of our greatest weapons against the enemy. Worshiping God, glorifying God with thanksgivings and gratitude and praises. And then number two, are you believing he is capable? Capable to accomplish all that he has promised. And if so, if so, what are you fretting over? What are you fretting over? What are you angry? What are you wrathful over? God's got this. He's got this. He always has and he always will. Hope in him. Hope in him. And in him, you have the promise of eternal life. Life to the full. Life to the maximum, to the nth degree. Everything your spirit wishes this life would be, the next will be, and beyond imagining. That's our hope. If you hope in this world, you will be continually and sorely disappointed. But if you hope in Christ and you die to this world, you will find life. And you will find life that wells up to eternal life. I wonder as we are thinking through life and faith and circumstances, have we made God pocket-sized? Have we made him subject to the things in our life? Or are, are the things in our life subject to him? Do our circumstances determine our faith in God? Or is our faith in God bigger than our circumstances? If you've got a little God, that God is quickly overwhelmed by circumstances. But if your God is big, if you truly worship the God of the Bible, then nothing is too big for him. Nothing can shake him. Nothing can overwhelm him. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, says our Lord. For he is faithful. He is faithful. And he is able to accomplish all that he has set out to do. And he's coming again. Do you believe it? He is coming again, and as he said, he will judge the living and the dead to make all things new. And he asked the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find the faith of Abraham, the faith of those who worship God, giving glory to God in all things, and those who believe God and trust his word, believing that God can and will accomplish all that he set out to do? And believing, despite our circumstances, that God is with us and he is for us and our hope is in his coming kingdom, not in this world. Will he find faith? Will he find faithfulness in his church? For as Paul concludes this passage, beginning in verse 23, he writes, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also ours also, you and me, for the sake of the church. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead 
Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. To be fully justified. Remember, made just as if I'd never sinned before Almighty God. Not for what we've done, but for what he has done. And it is by faith and through faith in him, which is why Paul can begin this letter to the Romans in chapter 1 with, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What Paul so expertly does is show the robustness of Christian theology, that in its true and full form, it can stand up to any attack. So Paul in Romans will be following all of the lines of thinking, all of the logical reasonings to their end, and the end is always fixed and completely reliant upon Jesus, and there's no way around it. It's all about Jesus because Christianity is based off the freely given gift of grace through faith in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. If you don't take anything away this morning, take this away. Take this away. You've been made right with God through Jesus. He has made the gift of grace freely available through faith and by faith. Abraham believed God's promises and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, grace is about believing and receiving. There's no pride in it. There's no boasting. It's nothing we earn. We are simply recipients of the all-surpassing love of God. And faith is about trusting and obeying. Faithfulness to the faithful one. Faithfulness to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the faithful one. We thank you that we can trust in your word, that your promises are true, Lord. Lord, we worship you, and we thank you that you love us, that you made us, that you promised to never leave us nor forsake us, Lord. And we trust in you as the faithful one. God, go before us this week. Would you increase our faith this week? Give us the faith of Abraham that in the midst of our patient endurance, our faith doesn't waver, but it grows instead, Lord. God created us a clean heart, a heart that worships you, a heart that desires more of you. And may we just rest in your promises, rest in your truths. May we not be those who fret. God, may anger and wrath be far from us because we know, Lord, that your promises are true. You're coming again to make all things right. You're coming again with your judgment and your justice. You're coming again to make all things new. So we trust in that, Lord. We look to your return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, amen.